0: From Michigan to Hawaii, Louisiana to North Dakota, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, it is perhaps the most influential conservative publication in the nation. Dr. Paul Kengor is here to talk about the history and impact of The American Spectator. One-third of the U.S. Senate is up for election in 2024. With the chamber almost evenly divided, each race will be important. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth is here with a real story. Key West, Florida may have the most libertarian history of any city in the United States. Eric Baim and Stephanie Slade of Reason Magazine have details. And we are just days away from the first votes being cast in the 2024 presidential election. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA looks at the state of the race on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. For decades, The American Spectator has been among the most widely read and influential conservative publications in the nation. Dr. Paul Kengor was recently named as only the second person to be editor-in-chief of The American Spectator, He, of course, is familiar to you, our listeners, as a regular commentator on this program. He joins us now to discuss the history and impact of the American spectator. Paul, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Paul, you are the new editor-in-chief of The American Spectator, and we're going to talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. But for those in our audience who maybe have not heard of The Spectator, maybe have read it from time to time, tell us a bit about how The American Spectator got its start and what it means to the conservative movement in this nation
1: thanks, Loman. The American Spectator is one of the oldest conservative publications in the country, the longest-running.
0: In fact, really, the only competitor there
1: would be National Review. And National Review was founded by William F. Buckley Jr. in the mid-1950s, Buckley coming out of uh, Yale, writing books like God and Man at Yale. And about 10 years after that, so 1967, back September 1967 to be exact, that's when the first edition came out, a college student by the name of R. Emmett Terrell Jr., who goes by Bob, (laughs) so the R is for Robert, but R. Emmett Terrell Jr., that's kind of his signature, that's his pen name, and his real name, his real name. And he founded the American Spectator on the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington. So it's very much a kind of—I um, think it's very telling, Loman, because it's, it very much is kind of reflective of its Midwest roots and also had a real campus flavor. I mean, the, the guys who came out of the American Spectator were, truly were college kids and kind of um, almost campus clowns in a way, but, but also very serious intellectuals, very well read not just in politics and culture but also in literature. Uh, I mean it's going to be no surprise when about 20 years later, two decades later, when spectators really spreading its wings in Washington DC, that people like PJ O'Rourke of Rolling Stone, you know, people people of Rolling Stone National Lampoon but conservative start uh, flocking to the American Spectator. With the exception of National Review, No other conservative publication out there has had this run nonstop in publication for over 50 years running uh, than The American Spectator.
0: Let's talk a bit about the impact of The American Spectator here, Paul, because over its 50-year period, the impact has been rather consistent and was particularly at a peak, I believe, during the Reagan administration
1: yeah it was and i would argue that the peak really was was the 1990s during during the clinton years in fact that that peak can be can be quantified the magazine hit a hit a circulation of 350,000 in print which as you know that's a that's a big deal i don't think national review ever exceeded 100,000 so it really took off when material junior and friends went after the clintons with some extraordinary exposés. I mean, it was the American Spectator that broke all those stories about Bill Clinton's philandering in Arkansas, the, the, the Trooper Gate, the, the Trooper stories, the Arkansas State Troopers, Paula Jones. In fact, it's the Spectator's reporting in that period that, that directly leads to the impeachment of Bill Clinton in December 1998. So you were probably gonna ask me about that. I probably threw you off a little bit, but, but to back up to the 1980s, even though the peak of circulation is, is in the 90s, I would agree with you that it really hit stride in the 1980s. And uh, R. Material Jr. at that point would have been, he was born in December 1943, so he, you know, he's barely 40 years old when, when they come to town in the, in the early 1980s. And Ronald Reagan, who was a big fan of The American Spectator, pretty much every major conservative read The American Spectator, even reached out to Terrell, had Terrell to the White House, went to Terrell's house, um, had dinner at Terrell's house, brought a bunch of White House people with him. He reached out to Terrell at one point in in the early 80s to see if they could work together to really launch a conservative youth movement that that would be spearheaded by the American Spectator. And Terrell was the right guy for it because coming up through his publication, George Will started at the American Spectator. Bill Crystal started there. Practically all of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, people like Bill McGurn, Malcolm Gladwell started at the American Spectator, Fred Barnes, Greg Gutfeld, who's now with Fox News, I guess he was a little bit later, um, he interned at the American Spectator in the early 1990s, in fact, stayed at Bob Terrell's house. So all of these kind of really young kind of hot writers, and and I must add here, too, and a lot of people listening to this already know what I'm talking about here, especially with people like P.J. O'Rourke, witty writers, funny writers, uh, a great sense of humor. They were attracted to Spectator, and they made it not just a timely, cutting-edge, political, cultural, intellectual magazine, but really uh, a a magazine that you could pick up and, and laugh, be entertained by. And for conservatives, uh, they could always always use a good, a good laugh as they, uh, as they watch the world and the culture around them.
0: Well, Washington always gives us a few good laughs, Paul, because otherwise we're going to cry over what happens. Right, right. So as this has proceeded, of course, nowadays uh, print publications are less, but the American Spectator has a robust web presence as well, does it not?
1: It does. And so the the, the print edition... It, it's been continuously going since nineteen sixty seven although at one point it was monthly and um, now it's not so you will put out one or two magazines a year but that's a that's a very conscientious effort to stay in print whereas a, a lot of others have said forget print, it's a loser, you're going to lose money. We've said no, we want print we're going to keep we're going to keep a foot in the water and we're going to hopefully survive this and ride this out to a day when when people want print publications again, and I, and I happen to think a lot of people do want print publications, but uh, but in the meantime, picking up in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, yeah, the magazine went online, and it's you know, spectator.org.
0: And now you are the editor-in-chief, actually, I believe, if I'm not wrong, the first person since R. M. Emmett Tyrell, Bob Tyrell, to hold that title. How did that come about?
1: yeah, so I, I was greatly honored. Uh, Bob Carroll asked me in uh, early in 2022 if if I would if I would be his successor to the publication and and I was kind of blown away blown away, really humbled by that. I mean i I had been writing for the magazine going back to the early 2000s. I became a one point, kind of almost like the de facto historian for the magazine. In fact, Carroll called me their court historian. He asked me if I would uh, be a successor, and I said, of course. I'm I'm honored, I'm humbled, and I'd love to do it.
0: Dr. Paul Kangor of the American Spectator, their new editor-in-chief. Also, you hear his commentaries regularly right here on American Radio Journal. Paul, congratulations on the new position. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Well, thanks so much, Loman. Anytime. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth at the start of a new year, a very competitive year for races in the U.S. Senate. We're going to go around the horn and take a look at the state by state races. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. As we kick off 2024 here, Scott, tell us where we stand with the U.S. Senate as we head into the election cycle.
2: Well, we're in a 51 49 Senate with Democrats having a narrow majority. And that means Chuck Schumer's in charge of the Senate, right? So if you can think about how important the 2024 elections are, not just from the presidential standpoint, but also from the United States Senate map, we've got a lot of big competitive races that I think certainly put Republicans in good position to flip that majority. And, you know, it started out with Joe Manchin announcing that he wasn't going to seek re-election. We know that West Virginia is going to be a red state. The Democrats don't have a strong candidate, and Republicans are going to be fighting between Jim Justice and Representative Alex Mooney for the Republican nomination.
0: There are a couple of big Republican states that are up for re election this year as well. Scott, want to tell us a bit about what's happening in Texas and Florida? Should be on balance Republican states, shouldn't they?
2: Yeah, Florida has been, uh, I think, turning red underneath Governor DeSantis's leadership. But Rick Scott is up for re-election. We know that Florida always has really close elections. And in Texas, Ted Cruz is facing re-election. We think that he's safe, but you obviously want to make sure that when you have these big, high-profile Republican senators that are facing strong, credible, and well-funded Democrats like Colin Allred, then you want to make sure you're not taking anything for granted. So those are a couple of the incumbent races that everybody's sort of keeping their eyes on during the 2024 Senate map. But in Ohio, recently, we had big endorsement for one of the candidates there. President Trump endorsed Bernie Moreno for the Republican nomination. And in the general election, he'll be facing Sherrod Brown, assuming that he wins the nomination. And so you've got these Red state, big races where Democrats have proven that they can win over and over and over, not just in West Virginia with Joe Manchin, who's retiring, but in Ohio with Sherrod Brown and Montana with John Tester In the Montana Republican primary, Tim Sheehy right now is the Republican candidate that a lot of people are focusing in on. Congressman Matt Rosendale, I think, is going to make a decision here in early 2024 about whether or not he's going to run for the United States Senate again. That would be a, a, a really competitive Republican primary. She he is a Navy SEAL, and Rosendale has been elected statewide five times from, from being the state auditor to being the at-large member of the House of Representatives before Montana had reapportionment during the last congressional cycle. So that's one to keep, keep our eyes on as well. Then when you start to think about, okay, where are the Republican governors in states that have Democrat senators? And Nevada is one of those states. And we know that Republicans are, are going hard to try to flip Nevada. There's a couple of candidates there. Sam Brown has a lot of momentum and a lot of support from the Republican establishment and sort of the institution in Washington that helps these uh, Republicans win the nomination. So it'll be interesting to see if Sam Brown can flip that seat. In Arizona, we've got a really, really strong candidate, but it's a weird race because Kirsten Cinema is running as an independent. Ruben Gallego is running as a, the Democrat. And Kerry Lake is running as the Republican candidate. So Lake has also been endorsed by President Trump. Uh, I think she's a shoe in for the Republican nomination there. And uh, it'll be really, really interesting to see whether or not Arizona next November is one of those races that we can flip because of the, the dynamics of having three candidates on the ballot. Then when you move over, let's go to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, right? In your state of Pennsylvania, the Republican nominee is going to be Dave McCormick. Dave received the party support there in the Commonwealth. And it gives him a real, real advantage of being the presumptive nominee for Pennsylvanians. And so that's one I think a lot of people are kind of like, okay, can we defeat Bob Casey? Casey has been in office for a really, really long time. We've had Republicans in the Senate before. We lost a close race last cycle with John Fetterman. But Pennsylvania, I think, is one that a lot of people hope that we can Flip in 2024.
0: Another Commonwealth where races tend to be very competitive is the Commonwealth of Virginia, where, of course, uh, Glenn Youngkin won the governorship here a couple of years ago. Uh, Scott, you personally are involved in that race. Tell us a little bit about the landscape in the Old Dominion.
2: Yeah, in Virginia, we've got, I think, a real opportunity to flip it red for the first time since 2004 at the presidential level. Biden has been tanking in terms of his popularity, he's gone from up 16% in May to just 9% in August. And in November, he was all the way down on the margin of error with just a 4% lead, 48-44. And so in 2023, we saw the Republicans in Virginia just lose the popular vote by about 2,500 votes. And if you think about Biden's handling the economy, if you think about a, a highly educated uh, voter populace, We think that Virginia is very much in play for winning in 2024 and defeating a socialist
0: Democrat, Tim Kaine. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we always tell people a little bit about the club before we end, so please go ahead and do that. Well, Club
2: for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. You can check out our
0: website, clubforgrowth.org. Happy New Year, Scott. We'll talk to you next week. Happy New Year. Thank you. Key West, Florida has a colorful and mostly libertarian history, as we learn from Eric Boehm and Stephanie Slade of Reason Magazine.
3: Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. You know, on this show, in this segment in particular, we, we talk about some serious stuff, some wonky stuff. And my guest today is somebody who also spends a lot of time writing about really serious things, writing about the intersection of uh, authoritarianism on kind of both the left and the right and about the ways in which uh, government you know, should work or but, but oftentimes doesn't. But today, it's the week here at the end of the year. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you out there. And and I thought we'd just have a little bit of fun. So my guest today is Stephanie Slade. She's a senior editor at Reason Magazine. And she's here to tell us a bit about the colorful and libertarian history of Key West, which is the subject of a piece in the latest edition of the print magazine, of of Reason Magazine. You can find that. We have a whole issue dedicated to Florida, which is in many ways the most interesting state in the country, I think. And uh, fittingly enough, Stephanie joins us from Florida on the phone right now. Thanks for taking some time with us today, Slade.
4: Thanks, Eric. Happy to be here.
3: I found this just to be sort of a a fascinating piece about uh, a place that I mean, I think I had some idea about the history of Key West, but never in this level of detail. Key West is is maybe the most libertarian place in the United States.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was the question I set out to ask. It certainly seems on first blush like a libertarian place. And so I thought I would look into the history, its history, and see if the reputation stacks up. And I found that for the most part, it does
3: you go back in the piece all the way to kind of the early 20th century when Key West was, I mean, it, it had existed before that. There had been people living there before that, but it had become a, a place where there was a, a lot of trafficking of alcohol, tobacco, stuff like that.
4: Yes, it was definitely, it, got, it sort of got its reputation as a den of vices, um, and, and this especially exploded. I mean, it was already the case that it was a place you could go to find gambling and prostitution, but during Prohibition, this was one of the major ports of entry for booze coming into the country from the Caribbean.
3: And that's generated—I mean, obviously there's, there's been a—obviously uh, there's, there's a connection there to, like, Ernest Hemingway and, you know, the, the kind of arts culture that existed in Key West. I think that was probably the thing that I knew about uh, Key West before reading this piece. But you go into some of the the history here, too, of, like, the way in which the federal government then tried to—after this, this kind of libertarian cultural place existed, then during the New Deal you had an attempt to sort of institutionalize that as, like, this is what Key West is defined by, is this thing that emerged— really spontaneously.
4: Yeah, a guy, this guy named Julius Stone who worked he was a New Deal federal administrator and he went down to QS West and he was like, you know, it was suffering during the Great Depression and he said we're going to re- we're going to sort of revitalize the economy by making this a tourist destination and so he pumped huge amounts of federal dollars into the economy to try to turn it into this arts culture. So they hired painters to paint murals and they hired actors to stage plays and so I write in the piece that actually maybe one of the least libertarian th- you know things about Key West history that I discovered is that this this arts or artsy culture that is very fam- that Key West is very famous for was in many ways not an organic organically evolving thing but was was essentially um, centrally planned during the New Deal.
3: And that's, of course, what kind of drove Hemingway away, drove away some of the people who had been there back uh, when the place was, uh, you know, not funded by federal arts grants. Uh, We're talking with Stephanie Slade. She is a senior editor at Reason Magazine and the author of a piece, Long Live the Conquer Public. About the history, the mostly libertarian history, as she puts it, of Key West, Florida. Uh, Stephanie, last couple minutes here, let's talk about the Con Republic stuff, because this is the thing that I think is uh, probably the most fascinating part of the history of the island here. Back in 1982, the Border Patrol kind of cut Key West off from the rest of the country.
4: That's right. They set up a, a checkpoint at the top of Highway 1, which is basically the only road in and out of the Keys, the Florida Keys, to get from the mainland onto the islands. And they set up this border checkpoint, and they stopped every car supposedly looking for illegal immigrants, but clearly also looking for illegal drugs. Because this, this had been, again, a major, always the Keys were a major port of entry for illegal substances.
3: The result of this was that Key West sort of kind of declared independence. Not really, but in a way.
4: Yeah, exactly. So the the mayor. So what happened was this caused a huge, um, a negative impact shock on the tourism industry because people did not want to go down to Key West on the weekend if they were not going to be able to get home, or if they were going to have to st- sit in traffic for hours and hours trying to get home. And so the business owners and the mayor of Key West went ballistic, and they they tried to file a federal injunction to get the checkpoint removed, and that didn't work. And so they, they took matters into their own hands, and they called a press conference, and they declared that they were seceding from the union. And they said, if you're going to treat us like a foreign country where you have to go through a border checkpoint to get from, say, Miami to Key West, then we're going to become one. And they literally created their own flag. They declared themselves the Conquer Republic. He stopped going by mayor of Key West and started going by prime minister. It was, it was clearly a, um, a publicity stunt. Um, but it was one that was done out of genuine anger over the situation and an attempt to draw attention to what they felt was a very unjust situation and it worked the checkpoint was removed and this idea that qs is not just a city or an island but rather a a a place with a quote unquote sovereign state of mind a sovereign you know independent country is now a a major part of the of the, the culture down there and of the thing that people go down to uh, experience so they have an independence day celebration in in april i think it is um at the point on the date when they had declared this independence they do things like they stage mock battles between the the visitors and citizens of qs against the u.s navy um to show that they're an independent country i mean it's a really fun long-running gag you can even go and buy a Passport for the Conch Republic, and there have been documented cases of people using that passport. They shouldn't be able to do this, but they have to travel abroad and then re-enter the United States.
3: Maybe Key West. I mean, maybe it's the most libertarian place in America. Maybe it's the most American place in America. I mean, we're a country that was founded on the idea of succession, and that's you know, I guess what what Key West kind of maintains that ethos. Really fascinating piece. History of uh, Long Live the Conch Republic. That's the name of the piece. You can find it in the latest issue of Reason magazine or online at Reason. com. It's out from behind the paywall now. So check it out there. Uh, that's all the time we got today. Uh, Slade, thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you. And again, that is Stephanie Slade, senior editor at Reason Magazine. Check out that piece online and everything else that we've been working on throughout the year and uh, and into next year as well at uh, Reason.com. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Boehm. Catch me right back here next week in the new year on another edition of American Radio Journal. The candidates are off and running as the 2024 presidential election
0: shifts into high gear with the first caucus and primaries almost upon us. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA takes a look at how the contest is shaping up on this American Radio Journal commentary.
5: In a matter of mere hours, we will enter the presidential election year of 2024. After four Republican debates, all without Donald Trump, and after enduring a virtual barrage of media stories about President Joe Biden's dismal poll ratings, Let's take a look at where the race stands and what we might expect. On the Republican side, although Trump is historically far ahead, the race is probably much closer than most of the media coverage would have you believe. We should virtually ignore all national polls. Primaries are a state by state process, not a single event, and early primaries affect later primaries. National surveys ignore this important dynamic and include states. Where most, if not all, candidates have not even campaigned. The resulting picture is nearly meaningless. Second, most early polls have much smaller sample sizes than later polls, so media coverage often ignores individual polls and instead uses polling averages, like the ones published daily by RealClearPolitics.com, on the theory that averaging polls reduces the instability of small sample sizes. The problem with polling averages is that they mask polling trends. The race for second position among Republicans is more important than jockeying for second place in most presidential election years because no front-running candidate in either party has ever carried as much negative baggage as Donald Trump, with the likelihood of still more to come. The probability of the front-runner imploding has never been as great. The two Republican candidates contesting for second place are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, and their polling averages are close to a tie. However, in the states where Haley has campaigned personally and spent money, her trend is upward, while DeSantis' is downward where he has campaigned and spent. That is significant, and if it continues for another week, it will constitute genuine momentum. Haley has been ahead in New Hampshire for weeks, But if she is able to begin the season by nipping DeSantis in Iowa, especially after he was endorsed by both Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds and influential Christian conservative Bob Vanderplatz, she'll be crowned the leading Trump alternative. Trump's polling lead in virtually all polls is substantially greater than any other Republican candidate's lead in history at the beginning of an election year, and most political commentators treat him as the putative nominee. I disagree. I am convinced that the mounting toll of indictments, revelations, verdicts, and a few general election polls showing some erosion of his lead over Biden will eventually produce a collapse of support. I'll concede that there's no evidence of that today, and even some evidence to the contrary, But my trust in the wisdom and decency of the American people leads me to this conviction. The later it occurs, the better for Haley and DeSantis, because as long as Trump's candidacy is viable, Biden will likely remain on the other side. On that Democrat Party side, Biden is highly vulnerable, but he will persist unless he suffers a health crisis. His approval rating in all polls is well below 45%, but it may be creeping upwards. The two primary issues hurting him are his age and disapproval of his handling of the economy. The former won't go away and may get worse, but on the latter, on the economy, he may benefit from a strong stock market and a reduction in inflation. If that issue improves for him, the border crisis is ready to move up as a major negative to take its place. Even though an incumbent, Joe Biden is simply not a strong candidate. And if some catastrophe occurs that further weakens him, the Democrats will find themselves in a panic to replace him and little time to do so. Several months ago here on American Radio Journal, I made a bold prediction. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden will be their party's nominee for president in 2024. I still stand by that prediction. The process begins for real with the Iowa caucuses. It will continue until June 4th when the District of Columbia, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota hold their primaries. That's more than six months from now. A lot can happen in such a long span. And the party conventions in July and August offer additional opportunities for change. So don't expect the final lineup of presidential candidates for the 2024 general election to look anything like the Trump-Biden redux that the media are stubbornly projecting. We haven't even looked at the possible impact of third-party candidates. Remember Ross Perot? Fasten your seatbelts, America. There's turbulence ahead. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including... W-R-A-K-A-M in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, W-H-L-M-A-M in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, along with W-S-O-Y-A-M in Decatur, Illinois. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.